Happy Sunday, West Village family. How's it going? Uh, if you are new joining us online, it is uh, great to have you. Uh, ever since we have uh, had to go to exclusively online gatherings, we've had new faces joining us from all over the place. We're excited to have you uh, join us. My name is Chris, one of the leaders here at the church, and just want to extend a special welcome to you, give you a chance to get connected to us. Simply text your name to the number below, uh, and our staff will follow up and help you figure out what it looks like to be a part of our church uh, in this season. I need to get to work because I got a lot uh, to say, and I, and I don't want you to hit pause or turn me off in the middle. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to the book of Esther. Go to Esther chapter 6. We've been going uh, verse by verse through the book of Esther. We're going to pick up in Esther 6, uh, verse 14, and then move into Esther chapter 7. And as you turn there, I want to just set this up with a couple of thoughts. I think I said this two Sundays ago, but I'm going to say it again. I think that Genesis chapters uh, 1 to 3 do the best job of helping us understand what it means to be human. There's all kinds of ideas, ideologies, philosophies that try and unpack for us the measure of the human existence. But uh, from my perspective, obviously I'm a little bit biased, but I think Genesis chapter 1 to 3 does the best job of un helping us understand the human condition. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 3 this picture, in, and in some senses it's a, it's a terrible picture, but in other senses it's a beautiful picture whereby uh, Adam and Eve, God's first creation, his created humanity, have went from walking with him to walking away from him. They went from walking with God in the garden, having perfect relationship with God in Genesis 1 and 2. They had perfect relationship with one another. They had perfect relationship with the creation, the world around them, the created order around them. And then in Genesis chapter three, they made a conscious decision to try and live life without God, to try and seek contentment, fulfillment, happiness apart from God himself. And God comes to them to have a conversation with them, to seek them out, to, to, to ask them what is going on. And he comes and he asks them this question. It's the first question that God asks of, asks of us in the Bible. And he says, where are you? In other words, where did you go? Uh, we, we used to walk together. We used to talk together. We were face to face. We, we had a relationship and now you're hiding from me. And we, and we see actually in Genesis chapter 3 that the result of Adam and Eve's uh, uh, decision to try and seek contentment, to try and seek fulfillment, to try and seek meaning in life apart from God actually leads to a whole number of ways in which there's now death, destruction, and brokenness. Uh, again, there's this brokenness in the relationship with God, whereby they go from walking with him to hiding from him. There's this brokenness in their own relationship, whereby... They used to walk together in the, the biblical language that described what their relationship was like, uh, was naked and unashamed, and, and all the men said amen. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 3, we see that they, there was shame. They, they were now afraid, and they hid, and they covered themselves, and so there was brokenness between them. We even see shortly after Genesis chapter 3 that we see the first murder, uh, and we start to see like just the brokenness of humanity put on display as a result of, of our decision or their decision, which is now our decision to try and seek fulfillment and contentment apart from God. And we even see brokenness in the relationship between uh, humanity and the world, where now there's plagues, there's destruction, there's, there's disaster, and, and things that come in and start to actually work against humanity. I think if we, we just think about the world in the moment we find ourselves in right now, it's not a stretch to say that Genesis chapter 3 looks a lot like the world that we're in. 
uh, you know, the COVID virus, for example, is a great illustration of the way in which there's, there's a broken relationship between humanity and the world and creation, that, that our own biological realities are coming against us to harm us. Uh, some of the events, and, and I, I have no way intend to get political here, uh, but some of the events we've seen in the United States in the last couple of weeks with the, the death, the tragic death, the unjust death of George Floyd, and then the response with uh, protesters who are seeking justice. But then on top of that, there's been the rioters and the looters. And there's all kinds of things that are happening. Just demonstrate the brokenness that we see in our world. And there's this call, this cry that continues to come out from the heavens to us. And it's God's question. Where are you? Where are you? Where did you go? What has happened? And the entirety of the Bible is seeking to answer that question. How do we get back to this place where we are face to face with God? The world seeks to answer that question. Maybe not the question that God asks, where are you? But, but maybe f- framed slightly differently, where am I? How do I find contentment? How do I find meaning? How do I find purpose? How do I locate myself in this reality that is the world that I live in? And what we've been pitched is this idea that if we seek self-contentment, self-fulfillment, you know, philosophers or even psychologists would say self-actualization, that we'll find meaning. We'll be able to locate ourselves But the Bible comes against that and says that's not actually the way that we're going to do it. The way to do it is to come back to -to face-to-face with God, answer his question, his call, his invitation, where are you, and come back and see him face-to-face. Well, what we're going to see in Esther, uh, Esther chapter 7, really, but the verses we're going to look at uh, are that there are two people, Esther and Haman. And we've looked at them before, two weeks ago when I... Uh, preached last. We looked at these two characters. We're going to look at them again. And in a real way, the author of this book is pitting these two characters up against one another. And what we're going to see is that for Esther and for Haman, that there's two ways to answer that question that God asks, where are you? One that leads to death and one that leads to life. So if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter six, we're going to read the last verse in Esther chapter six, and then we'll jump into chapter seven. So picking up in Esther chapter six, verse 14, here's what it says. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So let me just set up what's happening in the book of Esther so you can understand what's going to take place in the verses we're going to look at today. In Esther chapter 6 and uh, the subsequent uh, chapters before this, we were introduced to a number of characters. We're introduced to King Xerxes and he's this power drunk king who's the functional king of the world and through a bunch of really bad decisions, rids himself of his wife Vashti and ends up married to Queen Esther. Uh, Then we get introduced to this other man, Haman, who we're going to see even more of today. And Haman uh, sees himself elevated to one of the highest places uh, in the Persian Empire. And his desire is that he would be honored, he would be glorified. He's actually a pretty bad dude. He's pretty a self-involved guy. And he, he issues an edict to the empire that everybody would bow down to him. And then we get introduced to a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is this sort of half-hearted Christian, if you will. He's got one foot planted in the church, the kingdom of God, and one foot firmly planted in the empire. He's not really sure where he lands, but he refuses, he refuses to bow down to Haman. 
And as a result, Haman gets frustrated with Mordecai and he issues with King Xerxes blessing and edict whereby he is not going to just have Mordecai killed, but actually all of the nation of Israel, all of God's people, the 15 million Jews who are living in Persia. And then we also meet uh, Esther. Obviously, the book's titled after her. She's kind of a big deal in this story. And Esther comes into the story. She's Mordecai's adopted niece. And she uh, gets married to King Xerxes through a whole series of events and through some coercion and some serendipitous experiences that seem accidental but are actually the providential hand of God. She is now being positioned to save God's people. This story is a mess. It's a mess. It's a, it's a story about broken people doing broken things. It's a Persian soap opera, you know? It's like, uh, it's like days of our lives times all my children and add a whole bunch of zeros. And that's what you have in the book of Esther. And yet somehow, some way, God is working through these people. He's working through this set of circumstances. He's working through this mess to bring about his glory, his purposes, and his ultimate redemption. So in uh, Esther chapter 6, verse 14, Mordecai's having a conversation with some of his family. He's really frustrated because he's just come out of a, we've just come out of a scene where, where Haman actually has to uh, elevate Mordecai through King Xerxes' own request. He's, he's called to elevate Mordecai, the one that he wants to kill, and so he's a little bit frustrated, and then the king his eunuchs, his servants come, and we're about to enter into this banquet that Esther is going to throw. And this is kind of the high point of the story where Esther is going to actually make her request before King Xerxes. So Esther chapter seven, now verse one, here's what we see. So king, so sorry, so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. Now we've seen this already just in these couple of verses. Banquet is a massive theme in the book of Esther. Whenever the author tells you you're at a banquet, in the book of Esther, at least, you need to know that something significant is going to happen. All the, ma the major scenes in the book of Esther happen at banquets. But notice something else here in verse 1. Esther is referred to as queen. Up to this point, she's only been known as Esther. This is the first time we are uh, exposed or given the name queen to describe who Esther is. Pretty significant. We've seen this progression in the character of Esther where she went from this passive character who let things happen to her to now becoming this active character in the story where she's actually starting to do things. She's starting to make things happen. She's starting to take steps. And, and really what we have said is since chapter four, where she had this functional, what we call the come to Jesus moment, Esther's really started to align herself more and more with God's plan, with his purposes and with his people. She moved from this kind of cultural Christian to someone who's a little bit more out, uh, outwardly spoken about her faith. And that's all going to come to a culmination here in Esther chapter 7. Verse 2 says this. So they'll come before Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine, something that Xerxes and Haman like to do, they make some of their best, uh, a.k.a. worst decisions while they're drinking wine. Uh, on the second day, the king asked again. Okay, so the king and Esther have had this going on for a while here where Esther is saying to the king, I got something that I want to tell you, but she's kind of been stringing him along. She's been a little bit savvy, uh, you know, in, or, or, or cunning, if you will, in how she's gone about this. She just hasn't, she hasn't come right out and told the king what she wants, but she's kind of been setting him up. So the king says, Queen Esther, what is your request? Ask me whatever you want, whatever you want, Esther, let me know. He's probably getting into grandpa's medicine a little bit. He's a little bit on the tipsy side. And here's what he says next, ask, and it's going to be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom 
and it will be granted. Now look at what Esther says. Big deal. Okay, this is, these are some big verses in the story of Esther. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. In other words, I don't want to die. Now, if you're Xerxes and you're listening to this, you're thinking to yourself, I don't even really understand why you're saying this. Why would you die? I'm not sure. See, up to this point, Haman and Xerxes have no idea that Esther's actually Jewish. They just think she is Persian. She's one of them. So the edict they issued back in chapter 3 and 4 to have all the Jews killed, they, they have no idea that this applies to Esther. Up to this point, Esther's kept her faith, her, her nationality, her identification with the people of God a secret. She hasn't told anyone. So grant me my life. This is my petition. And then here's what she says. Spare my people. See that? Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. This is a big deal. This is a massive moment in Esther's story. Functionally, what she's doing is she's coming out. She's publicly, for the very first time, identifying with the people of God. That's exactly what she says here. Spare my people. She says it again in verse 4, for I and my people. And then she says, we have, we have been sold. We have been sold to annihilation. And what Esther is doing here, you got to see this. This is so important. She's saying, I am one of God's people. But not only is she saying, I am one of God's people, she's actually positioning herself in such a way that she's risking everything to be identified as one of them. She's functionally standing up, if you will, taking out a pen and writing her name on the long list of names of Jewish people who are set to be killed. She's giving it all up. She's giving up her life in the empire. She's giving, her life, uh, giving up her life in the palace. Up to this point, she's had a pretty great life. She's got all the nicest clothes. She drives the best camel in the kingdom. She has the best retirement plan. She has everything she could possibly want and more. And what Esther's doing in this moment is she's saying it's worth risking. It's worth giving all that up to be marked as one of God's. And she's even willing to go to the point where it could possibly mean her own death. It's a big deal. This, this is her, you know, I, I don't want to overreach here, but this is her public identification with the people of God. This is not unlike, as far as it goes in Esther's story, this is not unlike when we come to faith in Jesus and we call people to be baptized. Baptism is a public identification with Jesus. It's a way of outwardly saying what has happened inside the human heart, which is I have been made new. I am now one with Christ. What Esther is saying here is I am one with the people of God. I am one with the God of the Bible. I'm a worshiper of him. I'm a follower of him. There's no more secrets. If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Esther chapter 7 for a second. I want to flip over to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, and his disciples are asking him, 
you know, what does it mean to be in the kingdom? What does this look like? And they're trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is one of the verses where Jesus is about as clear as he ever is about what it means to follow him. These are, these are some powerful verses. But notice what he says here, picking up Matthew chapter 16, picking up in verse 24. He says this, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple. Now listen to what he says, okay? This is important. If you're a Bible underliner, this is a, these are great verses to underline. He says, you must deny your, you must deny that they must, let me try that again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, what is Jesus saying? If you want to mark yourself as one of my people, then here's what it looks like. It looks like a life of self-denial. It looks like taking up your cross, which as you know, the cross is an instrument of death. And so what is Jesus saying? Well, he makes it very clear in the next set of verses. Look at what he says in verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will what? Will lose it. So if you try and save your life, you're going to actually lose it. And then look at what he says next. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever loses their life, whoever's willing to lose their life for me will actually find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give up in exchange for their soul? Well, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you want to be my follower, if you want to come after me, the way to do that is through not self-fulfillment, not self-actualization, not self-contentment, but self-denial. You have to be willing, like Esther, to give up everything, even your own life, to follow me. Now, the question we got to ask is, why? Why is this the way that the Bible pitches what it means to be a part of God's people, his kingdom here in the book of Esther in Matthew chapter 16? I mean, I could list verse after verse after verse with this constant theme where God calls us to a life of self-denial, self-death. Is it because Jesus is like, you know, he's this kind of, he's the fun police. His goal is to make sure you have no fun. If you're having fun, Jesus wants to come and, and just squash your fun, wants to take away anything good. He's like an angry grandpa up in the sky. As soon as you do something wrong, he's going to zap you with lightning. Is that, is that Jesus? It's not Jesus. It's not why he does it. It's because Jesus knows that the problem that we have, it's not merely outward, it's inward. It's not that we do wrong things. It's that deep inside, in the human heart, right here, this is where the brokenness lies. This is where the pain is. This is where the, 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 the whole thing needs to get undone. It's not just like when you do a renovation in your house and you kind of come in, like we're, we're getting kitchens renovated in our, in our housing complex right now. We're going to get a new kitchen. That's great. But what Jesus is saying is that you don't come in and put in a little backsplash, a new sink, some new flooring and some countertops and some nice, some nice uh, cabinets. You need to actually knock the whole thing down and build it up again from the ground. You need a full demolition of the human heart. And we hear that and we think, that sounds awful. It's so counter to the way that we have been taught that we are to live our lives. Generally, culture pitches to us this idea that we are, we are good people who make bad decisions. But what the Bible says time and time again is we're not good people, we're broken people and we live out of our brokenness and it's our brokenness that leads to the brokenness we see in the world. 
And that what we need to do is we need to do exactly what God says in Genesis chapter 3. We need to come back to him, see him face to face. And the reason that we don't do that, it's because of our hearts. Our hearts are actually broken. You know, I don't want to get too controversial this morning. I don't, I don't want to uh, get myself into trouble, but I'm going I'm to tread lightly here. Okay, I'm going to tread lightly. Uh, but the moment we're living in right now, this idea, in my opinion, this idea is it's just being exposed so clearly. Uh, like if you, again, you looked at what's happened in the last week and a half down in the United States of America. And, and we have this picture in our mind of a broken system. We, we have seen this unjust act that occurred to George Floyd. And it was unjust. There is no doubt about it. And there have been unjust acts that have taken place for a long time. And in fact, the system in the United States, but even in Canada, it's unjust. The reality is the system in every country, in every part of the world is unjust. Does, it, does the system in the United States need reform? Absolutely. Are things there broken? Absolutely. Now, what I'm about to say, it might be controversial, okay? It might, it might be extremely controversial. And if you don't like it, I mean, you can send me an email at nathan at westvillagechurch.com and I will get right back to you as soon as I get that email. But there are people out there, this is the controversial part, there are people out there that are, are lobbying for a reform in the system. If we can just burn the system down and build up a new system, everything will be resolved and fixed. It won't be. Is the system broken? Absolutely. But why is the system broken? Because the system has been invented, lived out, and propagated by broken people. Broken people do broken things. What needs to be burned to the ground, the system maybe, I'm not sure. I'm not going to make any political statements here. Okay, I'm going to keep myself out of as much hot water as I possibly can. But what needs to be burned to the ground is the human heart. The human heart needs to be burned to the ground and rebuilt, rebirthed, renewed. And this is exactly the language that the Bible uses to describe what happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus. They are a new creation. They are born again. Perfect, absolutely not. Just like Esther, we see this progression in her life from Esther chapter 4 to now where she's growing, she's progressing, she's becoming a new person. Why? Because God's Spirit is actually working in her. Even though we don't see that in Esther, the book of Esther, because there's no mention of God in the book of Esther, this is indeed what we see. We see her progressive sanctification, her becoming more and more reflective of the nature and character of God. And this is what we need. The picture that is being painted for us here is one not of a, you know, a, a good person who does bad things, but of a broken person who needs to be redeemed and restored. And there's this beautiful thread that is woven all throughout the story of God. Jesus talks about it specifically in Matthew chapter 25, but we see it time and time again in the New Testament. And it's this picture that as we come to Jesus, as we, we get made new again, what ends up happening at the very end, Jesus paints it so clearly in Matthew chapter 25, we stand before him, and we see him face to face. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, where Esther's going to end up at the end of it all, not the end of Esther, but the end of her life, is actually looking 
Jesus in the face. Seeing God face to face. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, answering his call. What we're seeing right here is her answering his call. Where are you? And she's responding. And where this leads for Esther, it's life. She becomes the hero of the story. That's not... That's not to say that if we come to Jesus, we become the hero of the story, but it's metaphorical in that when we come to Jesus, we find life. When we repent, when we humble ourselves, when we recognize that at our very core, there's a problem. That we need to be saved, we need to be redeemed. When we stop looking for contentment in things other than than God, God himself, that when we realize that it's when we come face to face with him and answer his call, where are you, that we'll actually find fulfillment. It's not in relationships. It's not in our marriages. It's not in our relationships with our kids. It's not in uh, our financial portfolios or our reputations. But when we actually stand face to face with the God of the universe, the one who made us, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, the one who made you, he knows you, he loves you. That's the moment of change. That's the moment of self-fulfillment, of (laughs) self-actualization. But it requires that we get out of the way and that there be a death to ourselves so that we can come to God because we indeed are the problem. And so Esther has this moment, this great moment, whereby she responds to the work of God in her life. She responds to his call and she comes to him. But now we see Haman picking up Picking up in verse 5, here's how the story continues on. Verse 5, King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? So remember what's happened, right? Esther said, hey, king, uh, I don't want to die. I don't want my people to die. This edict has been issued. Now, keep in mind, Xerxes knows, or at least he should know all that's happened. Maybe it's because every decision he's made has involved wine. He just can't remember. But he says to Esther, well, who is he? Uh, Where is he? Who is this man who has uh, dared to do such a thing? So all of a sudden Xerxes is socially conscious, right? He doesn't want uh, God's people to be killed, but, but it's probably not out of nobility. It's probably because he doesn't want Esther to be killed. He doesn't want his queen to be killed. And he's probably all of a sudden realizing that, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. A little bit between a rock and a hard place. I'm the one who okayed this edict to have all of God's people killed. And if all of God's people are killed, and that includes my wife, then I I'm in trouble. This is not politically expedient for me. Therefore, I need to figure out a way to get out of this. And so Esther answers the question. She says, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Now, if you're Haman, this is a bad day. Right? Couple days ago, everything was good. You were hanging out with Queen Esther. You were hanging out with Queen Xerxes. Yesterday wasn't the greatest day, but today you thought, maybe I'm going to bounce back. I'm invited to an exclusive banquet with Queen Esther and King Xerxes. So you post on your social, hanging out with the king and the queen, take a little selfie at dinner. You think everything's awesome. It's blowing up. It's going viral. And then this bad day for Haman. And then look at what happens next. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. 
Verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine, that's a first, King Xerxes, and went out into the palace garden. So King Xerxes gets up. He's thinking, okay, I got to figure out a way out of this thing because I don't want to get in trouble. How can I pin this all on Haman? Look at what happens next. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now, Esther chapter 7, really the whole book of Esther is filled with irony. It's one of the, the literary devices that the author uses to make a whole bunch of points. And this is one of the most ironic things. There's a more ironic uh, instance that's coming up at the end of the chapter, but it wasn't that long ago that, that Mordecai wanted, uh, or sorry, um, Haman wanted Mordecai to bow down at his feet. And it was because Mordecai wouldn't bow down at Haman's feet that he issued the edict to have all of God's people killed. And now here we see Haman. What's he doing? He's bowing down at whose feet? Queen Esther's feet. Who's what? She's Jewish. The same people he wanted killed. Asking for what? His own salvation. Deeply ironic. And then look at what happens next. As soon as, uh, sorry, go back. Uh, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Then the, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in my own house? So what happens? The king comes back from the garden. Remember, rocking a hard place. He's got to figure out a way to get out of this thing. He comes back into where the banquet is and he sees, um, uh, he sees Haman at the feet of uh, Esther as she reclines on the couch. He's begging for her forgiveness. He's probably crying. He's probably clutching onto her. And the king says, are you committing sexual assault? Now, I don't think that Haman is doing this. I mean, I don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But if he is, you know, this is he's thinking this is his moment to put the moves on the queen, you know, like break out the, the bubbly and Barry White and try and put the moves on the queen. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Like, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but this would not be the moment that I would try and do something like this. What's happening here? Xerxes is framing Haman. So, so here we see Haman who goes from the, the highest ranking official in the king's empire to now being framed by the king himself. And then look at what it says next. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Why? Because Haman was touching the king's wife, the queen. For that, the punishment was death. Then Harbona, it's a great name. One of the eunuchs attending the king said a pole reaching the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. <laughs> Check this out. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke to help the king. So this was the pole that Haman set up in his backyard to have Mordecai crucified on because he wanted, Haman wanted to be glorified. He wanted everyone to see that Mordecai, who wouldn't worship him, who wouldn't bow down to him, who wouldn't serve him, who wouldn't love him, was being killed. And it's this very pole that he now is going to die on. And it says this, the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Haman sins against King Xerxes. And what does King Xerxes do? He exacts his wrath upon Haman. And Haman has to go to the cross. 
He has to pay for his sins. And he does so by crucifixion. We've said this a few times over, uh, but the Persians were the ones who invented crucifixion. The Romans were the ones who perfected it. And what is happening here, make no mistake about it, is indeed Haman's crucifixion for his sins against his king, the very king that he loved, the very king that he served, the very king that he desperately wanted approval from has now come against him and killed him. Think about this. Don't miss the irony. Don't miss the contrast between Esther and Haman, the very king that Haman was willing to serve came against him and had him killed. On one hand, we have Esther who's willing to give up her life, risk her life to serve King Jesus, to serve the God of the Bible, and her life is saved. And here we see Haman. Haman who is not willing to serve the God of the Bible, but instead chooses to serve King Xerxes, chooses to seek his contentment, his satisfaction in the empire through this whole story. The narrative that we're seeing here, the empire, King Xerxes is metaphor, a metaphor for, for the world, the world apart from the kingdom of God. See what Haman has chosen over the God of the Bible is he's chosen his own contentment. He's chosen his own wealth. He's chosen his own glory. He's chosen his own prestige. And he thinks if he gets those things, if he finds those things, if he can have those things, where it will lead for him, where it will land him is in a place of ultimate joy and satisfaction. And instead, where does it get him? It gets him death. Haman thought, if I could just have more, if I could get more, if I could just be more powerful, more influential, then I would have everything I need. And instead of that, instead of having everything he needed, in fact, he had nothing that he needed. He lost his own life. One of the things that the book of Esther is trying to show us is that life apart from God always leads to death. There's so much darkness in this story, and the reason for it is because God is absent, and it's not until the characters start to work in step with the providential hand of God that we start to see threads and shreds and evidences of light. And that is because the empire always leads to death. The world always leads to death. Life apart from Christ always leads to death. Genesis chapter 3 always leads to death. For Haman here, it was physical death. But for us, it's much more than that. It's not just physical death, although it is indeed that. It is a spiritual death whereby we can never find what we're looking for. Uh, there's, a, there's an insatiable brokenness in our heart that causes us to long and to reach and to look that, that we can never find the cure. Oh, we're like a functional dog chasing our tail, running in a circle, thinking when I can find this, if I can have that, if I could, if this, then uh, 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 and it just never satisfies. The kings that we give ourselves to, the kings that we serve, that aren't King Jesus, they always, think about this, friends, they always ask us that we die for them. King Xerxes has Haman crucified because he's a bad king. 
the kings we worship, the things that we live in pursuit of outside of the grace of God for our sustenance and satisfaction, they always ask that we die. If we serve money, we have to kill ourselves to achieve it. If we serve uh, relationships, if, you know, if, if it's like there's people that are like right now in this moment, my heart breaks for some people. You know, I was, I was watching the news the other day and in our, uh, a news report came out that right now um, people who are struggling with addiction, opioid overdoses are on the rise. I mean, we, our office is two doors down from a liquor store. And man, that thing, it doesn't matter if there's a global pandemic. It doesn't matter if there's riots in the streets. It is always a good day for the liquor store. And I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't be able to have a drink now and then. But there are so many people right now who are lonely and isolated and they're drinking to soothe the brokenness in their hearts. It asks you to die for it. You think, you think that it'll make you happy, but it asks you to die for it. There are people who feel alone and they're willing to give themselves to another man or to another woman thinking that that relationship will bring happiness. But in the end, that person asks you to lay down your life, your body for them. They're not willing to lay their life, their body down for you. And yet what we see with King Jesus What we see with King Jesus is he doesn't crucify us for our sins. He instead goes to the cross in our place for our sins. He lays his life down for us. And there's this beautiful reality that happens when you you hear that and the Spirit of God opens your eyes and your heart all of a sudden you're willing to give your life for Jesus because you see the beauty of his grace and his mercy. So let me ask just a couple of basic questions. Who's your king? Who who do you long to be in the presence of? Who do you long to have friendship with? Who Who do you long to see face to face? Is it Jesus? Or is it someone else? See, the invitation that Jesus has for us here, that he's calling out right now, he's calling out to us, where are you? That's not an angry father yelling out the front door at his kids, where are you? That's that's a loving father beckoning you to come home. Beckoning you to come be with him even though you've been running away. He's hunting down the streets, looking under bridges, knocking on doors. Are you here? Are you here? Where are you? I want you to come home. He's inviting you to come back to him. I need to land the plane. I need to close, close. And here's here's where I want to close. In this story, there's this beautiful yet terrifying dichotomy, dichotomy between Esther and Haman. Esther is a, 
a type, if you will, of Christ. She's a picture, a foreshadowing of what Jesus looks like. And just as Esther was willing to mediate between her people and King Xerxes, so too was Jesus willing to mediate on our behalf to God the Father. And just as Esther was willing to risk her life to see her people saved, so too was Jesus not only willing to risk his life, but he even laid down his life by going to the cross to die in our place for our sins, to see his people saved. And just as Esther identified with God's people and came underneath God's providential saving hand, so too can we, if we will humble ourselves, if we will lose ourselves, come under the saving work of Jesus' death on the cross. And then there's Haman. He refused to humble himself. He refused to give up his life. And as a result, he loses it. He loses it. He experiences the wrath of the evil king. It's his undoing and it's his death. And so for us friends, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Will we seek to keep our lives and in so doing, end up losing them? Or will we heed the call, the invitation of Jesus? Where are you? Come to me. Lose yourself so you can find me. And in so doing, find life. Find contentment. Find hope. Find forgiveness. Find grace. Find mercy. Find satisfaction. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are so good to us. We thank you that... I mean, Esther wasn't... She wasn't an amazing person. She didn't always get it right. In fact, there's so many times in this story where she gets it wrong. Even her coming, her coming to this place of wanting to follow you, wanting to serve you, wanting to identify you here, it didn't happen through her just out, out of this abundance of joy and love in her heart. She was functionally coerced by Mordecai to come to this place. And that's for so many of us feels like where we're at. We don't naturally in and of ourselves want to choose you, but yet somehow by your grace, through your providential hand, you continue to call and call and call and woo and woo and woo. My prayer for us, if this is the first time we have heard this, or we have been hearing this our whole lives, we would not stop coming back to you. Jesus, we thank you that there is a day coming where we will get to see you face to face. Face to face. We long, we long for you to make things right in our lives, in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen, amen. Thank you, church. Thank you.